Evening and welcome to First Say Chats by Dr. G. I'm Dr. Adana Grandison, a physician in Barbados and your hostess for this evening. First Say Chats by Dr. G is a live podcast that provides listeners with a unique opportunity to not only hear complicated medical conditions explained, but also clarify any misunderstandings you may have about that condition. After all, a medically aware and educated patient is an empowered patient. And this evening, our episode is entitled Dengue Fever, the Barbadian Endemic. And our guest is none other than Dr. Ariane Harvey. Dr. Ariane Harvey 
is an internist who has been practicing in Barbados for the last seven years. Dr. Harvey studied medicine at the University of the West Indies and completed her postgraduate training at Yale University. Currently, she is a consultant at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital and lecturer at the University of the West Indies Cafield campus. She also runs her own private practice. Most recently, Dr. Harvey has been supporting the COVID-19 response by sitting on several advisory groups while continuing care of patients admitted to the Queen Elizabeth Hospital. Good evening and welcome, Dr. Harvey. Hi, good evening. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Good evening, Dr. Harvey. Hi, Thanks. good evening, Dr. Grandison. Good evening, everybody. Thanks for joining us this evening on the show. And I wanted to start off, first of all, with a bit of background information about dengue. And so we know that um, dengue is endemic to Barbados, certainly. And right now, we are actually right dead smack in the middle of dengue season. Um, we would have noticed that in 2020, within the Americas, the information published by PAHO stated that there were approximately over 2 million suspected cases of dengue with 959,446,000 being confirmed. And of those confirmed, 4,938 went on to severe dengue. We're gonna talk about all of these different classification systems of dengue. And we know that we had within the region, 864 deaths. So let's start off this evening by telling us a bit about what is dengue. Sure, Dr. Grandison, and I agree with you. Indeed, dengue is um, endemic here, which means it's native to the island and it's been here as, as long as I can remember. Um, there are many people who, you know, in Barbados can say that they have a friend or know somebody who had dengue. And certainly we are in the middle of dengue season and we're having quite an active season, unfortunately. So dengue is a disease caused by a virus. So it's a dengue virus and the disease caused by it is known as acute dengue fever. It's a virus and, and we've heard all this information before, but it's a virus that's spread and transmitted by mosquitoes. It's in the bloodstream of people who have the infection, mosquitoes bite them. They carry the virus in their own bodies and then can transfer it or transmit it to other people and infect them when the mosquitoes then bite an, a different person who's not infected. Great, great. Uh, mm -hmm. Go ahead, go ahead. Sure, so dengue virus is, as I said, quite common here. And the reason it's, part of the reason it's so common here is because it's, we have the perfect environment to encourage spread of mosquitoes and breeding of mosquitoes who are the main carriers for this virus. Uh, mosquitoes, as we all know from growing up and the education that's been going on with public campaigning, that mosquitoes need settled water or, or rainy and wet conditions to thrive and breed. They need it to be warm. So that's Barbados check and check. And they also do well when there's a lot of foliage and bush around. And we also have that going on in Barbados as well. Particularly in the last five to 10 years, as the world gets warmer and our tropical season or our wet season becomes longer and more intermittently wet and dry, wet and dry, and we have more uh, experience for a bush to grow and be, and be out of control, we've certainly seen an increase in cases, as Dr. Grandison highlighted in the last few years of, of dengue. So it's around quite a bit, and we're seeing a lot of it right now. A lot of the times we hear people talking about the different types of dengue or there being four types of dengue. That is true. There are four different kind of cousins of the same virus. Um, all four are spread by the mosquito, the Aedes group. And that's the mosquito that we see around. It's a big mosquito. It has stripy legs, so zebra striped legs. Pretty easy to identify with the naked eye. Um, and these mosquitoes are usually the females who transmit the disease. And we find them often biting in the daytime. Right. Um, contrary to popular belief, where some people think you get bitten up more at night, it's really the females in the daytime who transmit disease. So they're actually daytime feeders. Yep. Absolutely. And much like 
you know, most people who function in daytime, most mosquitoes, they, even though they're in the daytime, they tend to prefer the cooler times of the daytime. So we see them doing most of their feeding, i.e. biting us, at dusk and dawn. So the beginning of the day when it's still cool, but the start, and then at the end of the day when it starts to cool down into nighttime. Okay, so I have our very first question for the evening coming in in the message board, and it's from Tony G. Does the mosquito act as both a carrier and a transporter of the disease? Absolutely. So once, uh, so if a mosquito bites an infected person, they actually don't get dengue, but the virus can exist, almost coexist inside the mosquito, doesn't cause the mosquito any harm. But in that blood droplet that the virus, that the mosquito draws out of the infected person, that virus sits in there and can be carried in there. And yeah. part of the way in which mosquitoes then bite and feed on the next person is they inject some of their saliva into that person to get to get through the skin and to be able to to feed off of them and in doing so they can then transmit the virus that they picked up from somebody else to you okay great so i wanted to go in to some of the symptoms of dengue um i know it also happens to be flu season we're in the middle of seasonal flu season and um how do we really differentiate dengue from anything else? How do we know we have dengue? Tell us a bit about that virus itself and how does it present? Certainly. So you're right. And, and there's a lot of overlap in a lot of the viral things that are going around now. Obviously, the most popular thing um, in our news and everything else is COVID. Right. And it is seasonal flu season. So you can have some overlap in the symptoms. So most viruses cause generally fever, feeling fatigued, and sometimes joint and muscle pains. What distinguishes dengue in a lot of the cases is the very classic headache and eye pain that you can get. So mm. patients tend to get quite severe headache when they're infected and start to manifest symptoms, which can be as early as three days after you've been bitten. And that headache is often associated with the behind the eyes sensation or around the eyes, which is often quite distinct from the usual flu or cold type feverish feeling, as well as the fevers in dengue can actually be quite high. So they can be very impressive fevers. Patients will get chills with it. Sometimes they get cold sweats and the muscle and joint pains can be very bad as well. So it's usually a more exaggerated response than you would see if you compare it to a regular cold or even a flu. And certainly it is a rapid onset as well. So today, you're good. E even this evening, you may start to feel your symptoms. It's not a gradual onset of those symptoms. Now, no, we it kind of hits you quite hard. We know about some of those common symptoms, but I also wanted to ask you, are there any atypical symptoms associated with dengue. Absolutely. And I think that's really important for this particular um, season of dengue that we've been having, because this particular season has actually, based on the cases we've been seeing, been characterized by the less common symptoms. And that, I think, has made it a little bit difficult for people out in the community to, to think, hey, do I possibly have dengue? And maybe delayed them going and getting checked. Right. So some of the less common symptoms you can get in dengue actually can seem like a gastroenteritis. Mm -hmm. Some patients may feel quite nauseous, um, may lose their appetite completely, and then may actually get a fair amount of diarrhea and maybe some vomiting as well. Mm -hmm. When we talk about classic dengue, that's usually not mentioned. Um, and certainly it's, it's, it's not commonly seen in classic dengue. But this particular season, and I think last year's season as well, we are seeing a lot more gastro-like symptoms, and particularly in children. So we've now learned after seeing cases of the last several months that if someone has fever, headache, but then also has nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and loss of appetite, that we don't only think about your run-in-the-mill gastro food poisoning, but we do think about testing for dengue because it can absolutely cause those symptoms as well. Okay, great. So you spoke about the four different serotypes of dengue or the four types of dengue and you also spoke about how that person presents now historically when I was growing up I always heard about hemorrhagic dengue hemorrhagic dengue fever and I know that that was part of the old guideline or the old way of um, classifying dengue but tell us about the current way of classifying dengue 
And why it's so important to actually use this classification system as it certainly reduces a lot of the ambiguity with the old system. Certainly. And I agree with you. Growing up too, you all, your biggest worry or your fear was, you know, dengue can become hemorrhagic. And it's certainly a valid fear. Hemorrhagic dengue certainly exists. It's uh, the most severe form of dengue. But as we've come to know the different manifestations of dengue and we've had more science behind what really causes the symptoms of dengue and how the viruses, the different types behave, we now have a kind of in-between class that we didn't really describe before. And that's severe dengue without necessarily being hemorrhagic, but which is still quite concerning and can still make you quite sick. So you have your mild kind of, you feel awful, but not in any way life-threatening type of dengue. You can have severe dengue where you do have a lot of dehydration and your concern for low blood pressure and being ill enough to require hospitalization is what we talk about now is kind of what the new type of way in which we look at dengue. And then we still have our worst case scenario, which is hemorrhagic dengue. The latter two can both make you ill. Obviously, hemorrhagic is the worst case, but severe dengue without hemorrhagic features is also an important condition that is actually responsible for a lot of the admissions for this season, to be honest. Mm -hmm. So according to PAHO, because I, I love to do my research, a bit of digging, and mm -hmm. what we saw in 2020 was that the circulating serotype of dengue that we had here in Barbados was actually the dengue 3, which is quite different um, from some of our neighbors. Um, for instance, uh, like um, we have Columbia that presents with all of them, all three, all four of the various serotypes. And then you have countries, for instance, um, Dominican Republic and even Ecuador that are part of the um, PAHO group that, that didn't have any presentation of serotype 3. And they were actually associated with lower incidence cases, whereas places like Colombia and Brazil actually had quite severe cases last year. Last year, we also saw that um, some of the presentation actually came a lot earlier. And I think that's sort of mirroring what we are seeing this season. Um, in 2019, the season initially started at the end of February and sort of tapered off um, in May, at the end of May. However, for, 20, for 2020, what we saw was that coming into mid-January, about the, the uh, third to, to fourth week, coming on to the end of January, we saw there was a serious uptick in cases and that went on to approximately um, again May. So, so that is sort of mirroring what we are seeing. Um, can you tell us, because you spoke also about the dehydration factor, and I think that that is absolutely important that we keep up with, the, with our fluids. Can you tell us how one would determine if they're dehydrated? Absolutely. And I think that's really important um, because most of the cases and, and as you know, we've been all we keep saying we're definitely in a flare. Most of the cases of dengue that have been referred to me or that have required admission certainly have been due to complications with dehydration. In terms of hemorrhagic, very, very few cases for this particular season have actually been true hemorrhagic, but many cases have been severe dengue with dehydration. And I think what a lot of people can sometimes miss is early dehydration or mm -hmm. dehydration that's not necessarily responding despite your best efforts and really when you need to go into hospital and get some and get IV drips. So some of the features of early dehydration and dehydration in general that I like to have patients look out for or when colleagues ask me, you know, what, what should I look for? When patients, if you feel excessively thirsty, a lot of the times we feel thirsty, we think it's hot. We don't really, you know, we don't really pay it any mind. But if you have dengue or if you think you have dengue and you feel thirsty, absolutely drink avidly. Even if you don't have the appetite, if your lips are dry or your mouth feels dry, you're dehydrated. One of the other things we like to highlight to patients, look at your pee. <laughs> it sounds gross, but your urine can tell you a lot about how hydrated you are. And you'll notice this on, you know, if, you, if you're out in the hot sun, if you're at Kadumut, when we had Kadumut, 
you know, if you're out in the hot sun and, and then you pass water and you notice it looks concentrated or yellow, that means that your body's trying to conserve water and it's concentrating your urine, which means they're trying to protect you or it's trying to protect you from dehydration. Yeah. So if you think you have dengue and you have fever and chills and you notice you're not urinating as frequently as you normally do or you haven't passed urine for a whole day or when you do it's a little bit and it looks very concentrated, you're dehydrated. We get worried, particularly if you start to have symptoms of what we call hypovolemia or low blood pressure because you're so dehydrated that you don't have enough volume in your vessels or blood in your vessels or water in the blood in your vessels to pump around efficiently enough to get to your brain. And right. that the earliest sign of that is when you stand up or you sit up from lying down and you feel giddy, lightheaded, or dark eyes, like how Bajans like to see. Um, and that means for sure that you are heading towards dangerous dehydration and you probably need to be seen by a doctor and you probably need to get a drip. Okay. All right, I have some more questions here. I'm actually sure. going to skip the second question by Tony G because, yes, we are going to go into that, which is he asks, do the symptoms in any way mirror COVID-19? So we're going to have a conversation about that close to the end. But I am seeing here another question. Are there any essential oils when diffused that can deter mosquitoes? And I guess you could probably extend that. Are there any essential oils, any bush teas, anything that all house remedies that, that we can use? Well, I will say I have, I have a, um, an almost two-year-old and certainly many of the preparations you have to protect from um, mosquito exposure and being bitten by a mosquito have pretty... Um, strong and potent chemicals in them that you sometimes can't put on patients or people who have thin skin or particularly very young um, people like kids. Right. So I definitely have asked my pediatrician and asked my friends around what more natural things that can still help repel mosquitoes but may not be as necessarily harsh as the off and the DEET that is recommended for adults um, can be used and certainly citronella comes up often and citronella is proven to to keep mosquitoes kind of away um peppermint actually also <laughs> in some yeah. cases really deters mosquitoes as well basil i've heard as well some people use lemongrass also yeah. um i don't know if dr grass have you heard of any other ones i i, I knew about neem neem bush oh yes neem how could i have forgotten neem yes yeah. definitely neem bush and also the all um, tried and proven sour salt leaves um, where sour you put a, few, <laughs> put a few fresh sour salt leaves in the house. That's what yes. I grew up knowing about. Um, and certainly they, they actually helped um, reduce the amount of mosquitoes actually coming close. But I do agree with you, the, the tried and proven way, especially for those persons who can tolerate it, would be some of the more in, um, chemical in, related insect repellents that you have on the market. Um, that actually work quite well, or um, wear clothes that actually cover the skin, the majority of the skin. And mosquito nets, don't don't forget about good old mosquito nets. They're, Absolutely. If you can get them over your bed, over your children's crib, sure, I'm, I'm all for it. Absolutely. Definitely helpful. We have another question here by uh, Dr. Larder, who actually she joined us for the COVID presentation. Uh, good evening, Dr. Larder. Do you know the dominant circulating serotype in Barbados, and why is it? seems particularly severe, especially during the first infection. And I'm, I'm assuming he's talking especially about this year because we are hearing so much about an increasing number of, of cases, cases that go on to severe dengue, and even mm -hmm. cases, um, increasing cases of death associated with dengue during the season. Do, do we have any information about this circulating serotype at this point in time? I have not um, gotten any information about the actual serotype we have circulating right now. I know CARFA um, is obviously overwhelmed with, with COVID, etc. But based on the symptomology that we're seeing in terms of what patients are coming in with, if I were, if I were guessing, I'd probably say three, to be honest. Okay. Um, but I, I don't know if we have actually published, even if we are collecting, which I'm sure we are collecting data, I don't know if we've actually published it. I mean, we as a, the, the region... Right. Um, on the on the back of the fact that we're trying to catch it with COVID and everything else that's going on, but as a guessing woman, I would probably say serotype three, just with the mm -hmm. gastro, the prominence of gastrointestinal symptoms and dehydration that we're seeing. Absolutely. Another question: Does dengue usually present with a typical and characteristic three stage rash? Because we spoke about some of the other symptoms, but 
we we actually didn't mention rash which we can see very much yes i think this is a great question for two reasons one i think that in a population as compared with you know the u.s or populations that have generally a more prominent caucasian population or lighter um, skin colors it's a lot easier to see the dengue rash so i think sometimes we can miss a rash here that is present in um, patients who are darker complected but also not everybody gets the rash so if you don't have the rash it doesn't mean you don't have dengue if your rash looks quote-unquote underwhelming to to you or you know you google and you see something that looks red and angry but it doesn't look as angry on you doesn't mean that you don't have dengue either um and some rashes sometimes the rash is itchy and other patients it's not as itchy so it is variable classically as i said we do see a three-stage rash which starts off as kind of a a ruddy looking um reddish rash that's usually on the cheeks and then moves down to the arms and legs and then moves inwards kind of up onto the abdomen torso that fades and then when you're recovering you get what I like to describe as almost a paprika rash, a a very, very fine, it can be quite orange on lighter skinned people and look a bit more magenta or darker pink Mm -hmm. or darker red on darker skinned patients. And that starts off usually on the feet and travels up the body. And that can be quite itchy. Um, But as I said, not everybody gets the rash. And the third stage rash often means that you're recovering. So I do like to see the rash on patients who I've admitted. And I know they're in the recovery phase when I come in the morning and I see that their legs are ablaze. I say, good, time for you to go home. So yes, classically, we do see the three stage rash, which is the red kind of angry one at the beginning that then fades to a a lighter one and then comes back as a more um, pinpoint more kind of focused red one that moves up the body but sometimes people only get the last phase sometimes people get nothing at all and sometimes people get the first phase and it kind of stays and they never get that that last phase so it is quite variable i'm glad that you actually spoke about the three stage rash because uh, according to also according to the new classification system we we, we think about um dengue in three phases as well which is the febrile phase and i just wanted to talk Talk to us in terms of what are some of the symptoms that you can have in the febrile phase specifically. And then when we go on to the critical phase, because a lot of persons think that certainly once the fever is gone, great, I'm good. But but that's actually really not the case because now you're entering the critical phase where things can potentially go wrong. Um, and then you're going to recovery. So let's talk about certainly some of those symptoms that you may have initially in the febrile phase and and then go and when you, you would be seeing those presentation of symptoms, and then certainly what happens in the critical phase. <clears throat> sure. So when, so you've been bitten by a mosquito, your febrile phase, which is the first phase, can start as early as three, four days after that, or can actually start as late as 10 days after that. Right. Um, it, it's quite variable. Um, so the febrile phase is as indicated by the name is the phase that's characterized by fever and again that fever tends to come on abruptly hits you like a brick and it's often associated with headache which can be around and behind the eyes it's often associated with muscle joint and bone pains patients will say i, I went sleep fine i woke up in the middle of the night hot and feel like somebody beat me mm. and that can go on for about up to three four days and it's an awful phase for the, for the patient. You feel terrible. It's also right. associated with severe fatigue. So when that phase starts to go away and you move into the second phase, you feel much better. And that's where patients often say, oh, the fever is finished. Thank goodness I'm on my way to recovery. But you're not quite there yet because now you're moving into the phase or the second phase, which is really the critical phase from a dangerous dengue or a potentially dangerous dengue standpoint, even though you feel better because your fever starts to go away. And so the second phase, which is your kind of in-between critical phase, is where the inflammation that your body had created to try and fight this um, virus that's that you've been in, in, infected with now starts to target your your bone marrow and the cells that are in your bone marrow and the two cells or the two cells that we worry about are your white cells and your platelets we don't really worry so much about the white cells but they go down a little bit and we can see that so if we do blood tests on a patient when you're just finished your fever we can see that the white cells are going down that doesn't really cause an issue 
Dr. Harvey, just want to interrupt one quick sure. second. What yeah. is the purpose of the white cells? They're not white in color, but what is the purpose Absolutely. of Absolutely. Was... Thank you for stopping me. So white cells are the cells that help fight infection. Good. And they, as a part of the dengue phase, can actually go down a bit. When you have infection, they actually increase to fight infection, but dengue attacks the bone marrow where those cells come from and can actually make them fall in numbers. So there are less of them, but that's temporarily and doesn't usually cause any major issue. There's another type of cells in your bone marrow that we worry about that you've heard about, most people have heard about, which are the platelets. And the platelet cells are cells that help you to, cl to clot. And basically, they stop you from bleeding. So if there's a tear in your blood vessel or an injury to a blood vessel or a hole in your blood vessel, those cells plug that hole and prevent you from bleeding. And those are the cells that can really cause issues if they fall during dengue. And that's where, and during the critical phase is when that can happen. Right. So often as your fever starts to go in, you feel physically better. Your bone marrow starts to kind of get the manifestations and the main one that is concerning to us is the platelets dropping and if the platelets fall low enough you can have issues where you can bleed and that's where we start to worry about bleeding complications or severe dengue right and, and, and certainly what really makes this a lot worse is also where you are as you said earlier hypovolemic because if you're dehydrated the body sort of tries to fix itself and re-equilibrate fluid about the body mm -hmm. and you have more leaking. There's a lot more of that sudden fall in platelets and everything gets a lot worse, a lot faster. And that's yep. why it's actually really, really important to remain hydrated. I'm going to take another question here that we have in the message blog. Um, it's from Nikki B, it looks like. Good evening, all. How, about how long does it take to recover after contracting dengue? And she goes on to say, I've had a headache for about six weeks now and recently started having painful ankles and swelling like someone beat me. How much longer, roughly, before I feel better and it goes away? So a few things. So after that, when you recover from that critical phase, and that can last about 72 hours, basically three days when we get, you know, kind of really worried. It can be up to five, but three days where we're, we want to make sure that if, as your platelets do fall, which can happen, that they don't fall to a dangerous level. And as Dr. Grandison said, that you don't have fluid being leaking out into other parts of your body and causing that dehydration or low volume to be worse. So once you start to recover from that, and you feel a bit better, the platelets start to come back up, you enter the recovery phase. And a lot of times, you know, patients say, okay, I've gotten over the headache and the fever, I feel great. The platelets fell and they're on their way back up, I'm good. I can go back to regular functioning. And that's actually not true. The virus is still there and you are now in the recovery phase and not the recovered phase, which is often what patients want to get back to. And that phase can last up to two weeks. That's a, a long time when you're still feeling very fatigued. You can still have intermittent headache. You can still have intermittent joint pain. Um, you can still have low-grade fevers as your body's immune system tries to slowly get the last bits of that virus under good control and, you know, get you back to good functioning. The appetite starts to come back, but you probably wouldn't have eaten or drunk well for the last week. So you, it takes a while to catch back up. So I often tell patients, Particularly also if you're frail, so if you're an older patient, you may take up to three weeks. Or if you have an underlying medical condition, you may take up to three weeks to get back to, to functioning. I will say um, to Nikki B, if you've had a headache for six weeks, I definitely think you should be reviewed by your doctor to make sure there's nothing else going on. Um, that there's nothing separate and apart from the dengue that's happening or that you haven't had a particular complication or, or a side effect from anything else going on. Because six weeks of headache is a bit long for dengue, but certainly up to three weeks after your initial infection, you should, you should start to feel kind of bad to yourself. But it does take a bit. It's not immediate after the platelets come back up. Great. So we spoke about those three phases. We spoke about the uh, different classification systems of dengue. And we spoke about something that a lot of persons worry about, which would be what we call in medicine a thrombocytopenia or falling platelet. But within the, why is it really so important 
to seek medical attention early. I know it, it, dengue really doesn't only attack the, the bone marrow. It could potentially go on and attack other organs like the heart, the liver. You know, what are some of the complications that are associated with dengue apart from those that we hear about all the time, like hemorrhagic fever? Sure, and I'll definitely tell patients, you know, I'm often less worried in most patients that end up being admitted about the platelets falling by themselves. Right. I'm more worried if I see other what we call warning signs. Mm -hmm. So going into the third stage of dengue where it becomes severe. So if you don't go into the recovery after your platelets start to drop, um, you can go into the severe phase. And it's not only the bone marrow that gets impacted by the inflammation but then other organs. And all of that is because your blood vessels start to get very leaky if you get into the critical dangerous phase. And leaky blood vessels, one, can predispose you or lend you to bleeding more easily. So that's one thing we worry about. But also leaky blood vessels means that other organs get swollen. Mm -hmm. And swollen organs that we worry about in particular are the liver. So if the liver gets swollen, one, you get very severe abdominal pain. And that's one of the warning signs that we ask about, we look for. And the liver itself is a fantastic organ. It does a lot of things. But one of the things it does that is particularly important in the setting of dengue is the liver also helps you to not bleed. So mm -hmm. if you have low platelets, leaky vessels, and your liver is damaged, that's where you can move into, being, into having hemorrhagic dengue, and that's, and that's concerning. Right. The other organ that we worry about can also is also the brain so the brain can get very swollen and if the brain swells patients can become confused they can have seizures and they can go into comas and that also as you can imagine can be quite life-threatening so if you have a headache or you feel dizzy and or you're not yourself or people say you know she's not making sense or seems like he or she's behaving strangely and has a history of dengue and you're kind of in that and phase where you're moving into, you might moving into critical, those are what we call warning signs. And those are what concern us for hemorrhagic dengue. Great, great. We have another question here. And this is from JJ246. Are persons who are chronically ill more at risk of contracting the, the disease, even though it's transmitted via the mosquito? No, actually. Um, so that's good in that if, for example, you have, you know, diabetes, you're not more likely to get dengue. What can happen is you may be more likely to have complications if your diabetes has damaged your kidneys from before. Or if, for example, you have underlying liver disease or underlying bone marrow problems, you're not more likely to get dengue. But if you get dengue, because those are the organs that can sometimes be affected by dengue when it's severe they may not be as able to cope with the with the stress of dengue as compared if you had no medical issues beforehand so you're not at more risk to get it you're at more risk to have complications if you get it depending on what your underlying chronic illnesses it, it are okay great another question coming in is it common with dengue to have a change in the sense of taste particularly a metallic taste is it known why this can occur? So I actually have had um, patients complain about, yeah, having weird taste or their taste changing. And that's very distinct from them not having an appetite. So they say, one, I don't feel to eat, but when I do eat, everything tastes terrible. Right. The metallic taste specifically can be sometimes from very subtle bleeding that you may not see outright. But you may have a little bit of bleeding and that metallic taste is just very small amounts of blood. That's certainly not life threatening, but maybe happening if your platelets are, are a bit low and you, you know, you eat something crunchy and you have a little bit of bleeding and it tastes different. Um, we're not actually sure why the change in taste does happen, but I agree to it does happen. I believe that patients get that and it tends to clear up as the appetite comes back and, and they hit the recovery phase. So we're not exactly sure why there's a change in taste. Sometimes you can attribute the metallic to there being subtle bleeding in the mouth that you don't see. But again, you're picking up taste wise. And luckily, um, it does go away once you recover from your dengue. And most importantly, it's not a loss of taste. It's just altered no. taste. Correct. Great. Not Great. a loss of taste. So I just want to switch gears a bit here. And I'm going to go on to testing. 
why is it important really to confirm that you have dengue? And also, how do you confirm that you have dengue? So I, th I think it's really important to confirm that you have dengue because when we opened this conversation, um, remember we were, we were thinking about the fact that in Barbados right now, there are a couple of viral things going around. Obviously COVID, um, our regular flu, flu season, and then dengue. And a lot of those early symptoms, particularly the, fe the febrile phase of dengue, overlaps with the first phases of those other conditions. Mm -hmm. I will also say that non-viral conditions but important infections in our community that can happen in the rainy and wet season like leptospirosis for example can mm -hmm. also mimic dengue by causing the platelets to drop on blood tests etc right. and i think it's really important to make sure you know what you're treating or what you're not treating when you when you know you think you have a symptom or what your doctor really thinks is going on because you want to make sure one you know what you're dealing with and two that you don't miss anything that can mimic or behave like dengue and then, you know, you end up not treating or treating inappropriately. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to, to definitely get testing. How we test is a blood test. And there are two main blood tests and they're essentially time related. So one test you can do pretty early in your symptoms. So remember, as you said, you can get dengue symptoms as early as three days after you've been bitten. Um, and the test that picks up that early stage where you have the virus, it actually looks for proteins on the virus so it looks for the virus itself and that is the ns1 test right and the later down when your body when you are kind of moving into the second inflammatory phase or the second phase when you're when things start to attack your bone marrow and your fever has actually started to maybe go away around day five day six is when you can do the antibody test and that test for your body's response to there being the dengue virus there and that is the antibody, the IG, which we call the IgM and the IgG to check and see if you do have dengue. So that can be done a little bit later. So there are two types of testing and each is done depending on how far into your symptoms you are. Right. So we have a question here. I think you had mentioned it earlier, but I'm just going to repeat this question because I, I guess the person probably didn't hear it. How does dengue affect the brain? I'm actually good. I'm actually glad that that um, question was repeated um, because I think it's important to recognize that dehydration and fever and not eating can make, you know, and headache mm -hmm. can certainly affect the brain in the sense. Yes, you feel awful. You may not you may feel cloudy in your thoughts. You may not be able to focus. Um, and that happens also in the recovery phase. So I have had several students who obviously are doing home, you know, their virtual learning, et cetera, who have tried to go right back to class after their platelets have come back up. And I've realized it's been really difficult to focus in that recovery phase. So the two, the two phases, meaning the first phase, which is the febrile phase and the recovery phase, can interfere with your ability to concentrate and be alert enough and not fatigued to do regular kind of mental functioning and task-oriented things. So I'd like patients to be aware of that. When you're thinking about severe dengue, the main thing we worry about is actual brain swelling, and that can be life-threatening. Brain swelling can cause seizures, coma, and even death. So that's why when people start to have warning signs, when you're in that critical phase and you're not going into recovery, but you're going into hemorrhagic, is when we definitely get more concerned about People, you know, patients, maybe not themselves or even subtle things. I've, I've had a wife tell me, you know, uh, my husband, usually he's not usually very chatty and he's been very chatty the last few days. And this is this is not him. And he was actually in severe dengue at the time because his brain had gotten a bit swollen. And when mm -hmm. he kind of came back to himself after he recovered, which he did, he he has no recollection of being as chatty as he was. So it's subtle right. things like that. But. Generally, it's concentration issues for the for the average dengue patient. Okay, great. So what are some of the public health interventions that we really need to, to focus on? Um, I, you said that the mosquito certainly can um, bite some person and transmit is a vector and can transmit the virus onto a human. Um, but it's important to really know that that mosquito actually carries the virus for its entire lifetime. Mm -hmm. So what are, why is it so important for us to really 
provide or, or ensure that we carry out some of these public health measures? Like, what can we do around the home? And definitely. And my mother used to make us do this like every rainy season, you know, as kids, she wanted us to get us out of the house. We used to go outside and turn over all the plant pots and make sure there was no collected water anywhere. And that includes, you know, if you have if you have small, small animals or if you have pets to make sure that their water containers aren't holding stagnant water, that you're refreshing those things, go around the house and look for anything that can collect water. Um. And also, if you, some people have ponds, make sure you actually have fish in your ponds that will eat the larvae. If you have to have bodies of water, you know, the, the, the thin layer of, of kerosene over the top definitely prevents oxygen from getting in. And then they can't, the larva can't put up their little breathing tubes and survive, so they'll die. And the bushing, your land at least, I know a lot of us have the frustration of maybe having neighbors or adjacent empty lots um, around that are not being cleared as, as efficiently or as frequently as we would like. Um, so you can actually call the government in and have them review areas to see if there is specific debushing um, if, to deal with collections of water. But certainly your own environment, making sure there's no stagnant water about in little cups. It, you need a a pet bottle cover cup enough to breed mosquitoes it's not a lot of water right. to make sure that you have none of those hiding on your property around anywhere and to make sure your roof gutters are draining properly etc and also to try and debush as much as possible okay good and i think it's also important not just to ensure that your immediate surroundings so the curtilage of your home is is certainly clear from any of these uh pots or, or containers that can collect water, but certainly that you ensure or try to encourage your neighbors and the community to really try mm -hmm. to keep their area clear of, of some of these potential breeding grounds as well, because you can you can have an outbreak in your neighborhood. If you have an area or, or what we call a little um, pasture that collects water in a certain area, yep. all of those things you, you need to be very mindful of. And I'm, I'm very happy that you also brought up the fact that the ministry assist as well with clearing areas that may yes, need debushing. Um, so I wanted to take these essentially last 15 minutes because I know that everybody now because we are so concerned and we and we can say with absolute certainty that there has been an increase in the amount of dengue related deaths. And I know that in the research we are also seeing that sometimes uh, dengue or or rather COVID can mimic some dengue-like symptoms. So why is it, what, why, a question that was earlier asked was, um, are there any symptoms that COVID has that mimics dengue or we could even go vice versa, are there any symptoms that dengue has that mimics COVID? And I think that's an excellent question. And I think certainly in these times where you really have to kind of think of everything when somebody comes to you saying that you know they have fever and they don't feel well um i absolutely think there's some overlap with covid and as we learn obviously covid is 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 relatively new as compared with dengue and so we as a region we as a international set of doctors and healthcare providers are learning more and more about covid every day and when it started off it started off you know this is a respiratory virus it's a pneumonia that's that's the main thing it's going to shut your lungs down but we know now a year plus later that there are many symptoms of covid that are not just lung and can have some overlap and this is not to panic people into thinking you know if i have dengue symptoms you know i i, I can just as likely have covid symptoms but certainly it speaks to really, as I said, making sure you make your diagnosis or at least you go to your doctor and your doctor says, OK, let me do some tests to figure out what it is that we are working with. So, you know, that you are being treated adequately and correctly. And so um, obviously fever overlaps, as we well know, dengue can sometimes cause cough. So hmm. you can see that, um, particularly in the recovery phase, actually, you can get some cough. So usually... For COVID, you would see that cough earlier on. And for dengue, you would see that cough. It's quite, as I said, it's infrequent, but it can happen. So definitely, if you have a cough that's persisting, persisting, and you're four or five weeks out of dengue, 
you should probably consider going back to your doctor and having them do a once over and make sure there's nothing else going on. Um, some headaches can be associated with COVID as well. We now know that COVID can impact your blood vessels and can cause many strokes and, and those kind of what we call vascular complications, which can sometimes manifest as headaches. Um, so definitely persistent headaches that go on for weeks after dengue or headaches that may be associated with more respiratory site symptoms and less kind of joint pains and that kind of stuff may well be something pointing in a direction away from dengue. And I think in these times, if it's not clear cut, you have to consider more than one diagnosis. Um, generally, we don't see the kind of bleeding complications that we see in dengue with COVID. Um, and often the white cells, if we do the blood tests, are usually increased in COVID as compared with dengue. So that just underscores the fact that not to just go based by symptoms and say, I don't need to go to the doctor, this feel like dengue, so I feel it's dengue and I can stay home. No, get, let your doctor assess you, do some blood tests, just because we are in a time where things are overlapping and the blood tests do help us kind of, you know, guide us as to thinking, okay, need to be more aggressive with testing this patient for other things which may include COVID or does this support that I think yes they felt they had dengue I agree we can go forward with supportive management and close monitoring and those, I think that's kind of mostly the overlap in terms of with COVID symptoms. Great can you have COVID and dengue? Absolutely it would be terribly unfortunate but the two are the, one doesn't protect you from the other you could go and get coughed right. on by somebody and bitten by a mosquito in the same day. So right. technically, yes, I think, it, again, I mean, it's quite unlikely, but certainly the two, one does not protect from the other. So I'm sure that that occurrence has and can happen. Right. Another question that we have here, I, before we actually take that question, um, I see another comment from Nikki. I, I am that you have had pains and symptoms and I do agree with your doctor for actually um, recommending that you get the COVID test done and mm -hmm. certainly you want to take this opportunity really to self-quarantine but I think that you you really should continue to follow up with your doctor um, because they would know the finer details to make sure that they can safely manage what is happening with you. So we have another question here. Is the fever with dengue usually a spiking one that is a higher than the fever usually seen and associated with COVID? That's an interesting question. And actually, fever in general and in, in terms of how high or how, how abrupt it is, um, people often try to link that with, with you know, either severity of the disease or if it's related to another disease. Um Honestly, I have to say it's the two diseases and, their, and the differences between the fever are not enough to say, okay, this kind of fever would be more in keeping with dengue versus this kind of fever more in keeping with COVID. Um, we do know that dengue is quite abrupt. COVID is a little more um, slow in onset in terms of the fever, but it varies from person to person. So I would not necessarily say that you could based on the characteristics of the fever alone, say that this was one or the other. Right. Okay, good. Uh, so we know about the potential presentation. We know about the transmission. We know about the symptoms, the complications associated with it. Sometimes the fact that dengue mimics COVID-19 disease. Um, are, are there any things that you can do if you get dengue, apart from, let's say, keeping up with your fluids, that can assist you with recovering from dengue? I think it's really important. I mean, I think you really have to underscore keeping up with fluids. Really, really, really. Um, and I think what happens sometimes is with the lack of appetite, the idea of eating or drinking is just awful. And I think you really have to push through even though you may feel like everything tastes gross and you right. don't want to drink at all and I often tell patients grease go and just sip sip do two or three sips every half hour um you know or every 15 minutes even if it's it feels like it's nothing it's something right. um I cannot underscore how important it is to hydrate 
The other thing is, especially in Barbados where it's hot, whenever we have fever, even if we're somewhere that's not hot, that temperature and that fever, you're losing water from your skin. So the longer you stay hot and feverish in a day or the number of fevers you have in a day, the more likely you are to become dehydrated. So managing that fever is important. So don't be afraid to take Panadol or Paracetamol. That is the one thing that we feel absolutely comfortable you taking when, if you think you have dengue. We don't want you to take anything else, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, the Aleve, the ibuprofen, the Whiz, only paracetamol. No Voltaren, um, no Cataflam, no Arcroxia, no none of the things that you may still have in your, your, your chest. From that time, you ring right. your ankle, none of them. You yeah. want Panadol, paracetamol. Absolutely. Or Great. Tylenol, if, if you have access to American or Canadian meds. They're all the same thing. And they're safe to take from a platelet standpoint in dengue. And so if you keep yourself as fever-free as possible, you're not as hot as often, and you're not losing that, that body water from your skin, you're doing yourself the benefit of, of not being as dehydrated in the days to come. Also, I think if you have diarrhea and you have vomiting, don't sit at home and wait with that. Because yeah. it's going to be really hard to keep up. It, the minute you start to th have diarrhea, especially if you can't keep anything down, definitely do not try to rough it out. Go to your doctor and let them assess you because you are probably already behind on your hydration status and you probably won't be able to catch up without some assistance from your doctor. Okay, And that would involve uh, essentially getting some IV fluids. Yes, and right. some medication to possibly help it's with the nausea. Yeah. Right, and vomiting, absolutely. And the vomiting, exactly. Great. Now I'm really, really glad that we had this conversation, uh, Dr. Harvey. I just wanted to know, within these last very few minutes that we have, are there any take-home points you really want to to wave a flag and, and send home saying, these are our take-home points for this evening because we are battling two, two major concerns here in Barbados. We have the COVID-19 mm -hmm. pandemic and we have the dengue endemic. Endemic, exactly. So, so tell us, I, I even saw a meme that said, um, fighting COVID by day and dengue by night. You know, how, how, how do we really handle um, this? And what are your take-home points for us this evening? Thanks, Dr. Grandison. My take-home points are, one, in times of COVID and in times of dengue, if you feel unwell and you have a fever, the first thing you do is you stay home. But when you are at home, you hydrate. You drink as much as possible. You don't necessarily have to eat. I know if your appetite is down, you will never starve to death, but you can certainly become dehydrated enough that it is dangerous. Right. If two days in and you're dehydrated and you're still not feeling well and you're still having high fevers, please contact your healthcare provider or a healthcare provider. Give them your story. Let them know what's happening so that either you can get the early test or you can at least get reassessed. Let them make sure you're not too, too dehydrated or you don't have any warning signs and that you have a touch, a point person that you can go back to and say, okay, two days from now, I feel much better. I feel worse just so that you are aware if you need to get your confirmatory testing that you have dengue or something else. Mm -hmm. Or if you are so ill that you need to be assessed and be referred for drips or even admission to be watched more closely. Right. So take care of yourself. Keep yourself at home if you have fever. But that doesn't mean that you don't reach out to your healthcare provider while you're hydrating to make sure that we know what it is that we're dealing with so we can make sure that you recover from whatever viral illness you have that we're battling safely and efficiently. And remember, the earlier you present, the earlier you can get help. Absolutely. Earlier you can get help, absolutely better your chances of recovering without any complications. Yep. Dr. Harvey, I want to say thank you so much for coming this evening and really making it so clear in terms of uh, dengue, dengue fever and, and all of the potential misunderstandings and complications that you can have from dengue. And I also want to say thanks again to our listeners this evening. They have participated marvelously um, yes. in the message, the message blog. And I want to say thank you to you guys. And once again, I want to encourage you to follow us on Podbean and Anchor and join us next week on First Aid Chats by Dr. G, Closing the Gap. 
I also want to let you guys know that uh, there is another Dr. G out there, G-E-E. -E. However, Dr. G is not affiliated in any form or fashion with First Aid Chats by Dr. Capital G, all alone. Okay, so once again, good evening, everybody. Have a wonderful evening, and please continue to be safe. Put on your insect repellent. Stay hydrated during this time. And seek continue. medical attention as Absolutely. soon as you can. So that you can be as well as you can. Thank you so much, Dr. Harvey. Thanks good evening, for having everyone. me. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thank you.